Dude, I need to get my razor out and slash you. Would you continue? <laughs> surprises me that it has actually taken us this long to get to something that is arguably so interesting in the what it is because it's it's so different from all the popular music at the time and yet so uniquely like what would come later oh yeah i definitely agree yeah i mean so tonight we're gonna cover some doo-wop so you know get out your switchblades and razors and get ready to rumble <laughs> no, that was last week. Come on now, with all that instrumental music. Oh yeah, right. Same thing. Whatever. We're gonna we're getting our switchblades out, and, or excuse me, I guess in this case our razors. Well, and, these would be these would be combs, man. They got to keep the hair slick. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah. So uh, as we've clearly covered already, uh, we're we're gonna stumble around a little doo-wop this night. Uh, we're covering the Clovers. Uh, by the way, welcome to do check out this song. I'm Pat. I'm Ian. And so, as Pat already said, the Clovers were a rhythm and blues and doo-wop group, mainly in the 1950s. And if you don't know what doo-wop is, why don't we explain it for you? Yeah, I'm a little sad that there's no birthday. Can you give us a birthday? I'll get there. Okay. I, I, I just don't feel like we're getting started unless there's a birthday somewhere. Yeah, we'll make it there. Okay, cool. Oh, but yeah, doo-wop. So, doo-wop's kind of a rhythm and blues type music that originated among African-American youth in the 1940s, mainly in large cities of the United States like New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Baltimore, Newark, Detroit, and Washington, D.C. And it featured a vocal group harmony that carries, like, engaging melodies and, you know, simple beats and simple instrument, little to no instrumentation, really. Which is really interesting, because isn't this kind of like a near-direct adaptation of, like, barbershop quartet kind of style, too? Yep. Yes, Which it is, is. Isn't that notoriously like a like an old cracker thing to do? <laughs> I mean, when I think of barbershop quartet, yeah, I think of some clean cut white guys. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 not sure if they're they're like racially aligned or anything like that. It's just uh, I know that barbershop quartets were a little earlier, were they not? I mean, yes, I, they were. Uh, this okay. this is actually a uh, a root off of barbershop quartet. Oh, okay. And so the, I'm I'm curious. Is there any other like offshoots of the genre that you're aware of? Yeah. There was another influence. It was the Mills Brothers, which was basically an offshoot of the Barbershop Quartet, but wasn't quite the same thing. So had more the, music in it and stuff like that. So, so Mills Brothers is a single band? Yeah. So they were like a like kind of a bridging influence. They didn't have their own genre. They yeah, basically. Kinda, that's interesting. Huh. Well, and of course, being that it sung, mainly. Yeah, there's no instruments involved. Uh, let's talk about the lyrics. The lyrics are usually really simple. Real catchy, you know, usually about love. Yeah, very romantic. Yeah, sung by a lead vocalist over a background of other vocals, you know, representing other instruments or, you know, yeah, other, exactly. you know, you got <laughs> bass and baritone, stuff like that, so. Yep, exactly. Each person kind of represents an instrument in the band. That's why you get to go, bow, wow, wow, bow, bow, bow. My voice love, is not quite low enough. I love that. some of the early stuff where you got the 
the bass guy talking over the bridge. Yeah. Just like, you know I love you, baby. Yeah, exactly. You know it's true. <laughs> it gets close to like that 70s, like, you know, uh, like, I don't know, kind of disco-y. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with that arrow yet, guys. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to look at it when we get there. But, oh, yeah, babe. You know, Ian's about to continue talking about this band and how they were born. Yeah. Well, and so the funny thing is, is this music would gain popularity in the 1950s, but it wouldn't really get its name till the 60s when it stopped becoming popular, really. Really? Yeah. yeah. It, it does kind of seem like a referential name. You, like, do up. Like, seems like something people would call it if they didn't quite understand. Right. What's that do up thing they're doing? <laughs> yeah, because they're always doing do wop bo wop All right, and so back to the Clovers. The first version of the group formed in 1946 by Harold Hal Lucas, at Armstrong High School in Washington, D.C., with Thomas Woods and Billy Sheldon. And they would do it as kind of a trio for a while, but eventually find a fourth member named John Buddy Bailey, who would end up becoming the lead singer, and that would force Lucas to move over to Baritone. Aw. The originator of the band. Yeah, well, that's kind of <laughs> shitty. But, I mean, uh, you know, arguably it makes sense because uh, Baritones are not typically considered the lead singers of most of these styles of bands. So, right. Yeah. That's soundist. God damn it. I'm, I'm pissed well, off already. Ah! Well, tenors kind of come through better. You yeah, know? they definitely do, especially with the lower recording qualities of the era. I would assume that you want you want your tenors and your uh, your nice solid treble era. Yeah, they pop through quite well. <laughs> well, and so being a four person group, Lucas originally wanted to name the group the four Clovers, you know, hoping to invite some sort of good luck within the band. But. Then in 1949, the group would become the Clovers as they take on guitar player Bill Harris to join the band. And in this whole era, they had a bunch of lineup changes that I could have gone on for like a 20 minutes on, kind of boring. Yeah, well, it seems like a lot of these doo-wop groups, while they obviously have about the same amount of members as the bands, they are very much more interchangeable. Well, and so let's get to some birthdays, shall we? Cause Yay, now, you made now, me wait too long. Now we got the fully formed group. The episode starts now. <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. You can forget the rest of it. We got John Buddy Bailey, born December 27th in 1931. Oh, yeah. Lead tenor. Good. We got Bill Harris, born April 14th, 1925, in Nashville, Tennessee. Guitar. Oh, yes. You say guitar? Guitar. Guitar. Well... Before they had, like, backing bands when they were recording, they had to have some sort of instrumentation doing the chord changes. Kind of yeah, kind of the that doo-wop do, sound. That does make sense. They had Harold Lucas Jr., born in 1923 in Washington, D.C. It didn't get an exact date on that, but he was a baritone. Oh, yeah. And he was the originator, correct? Yep. Yeah, okay. We got Matthew McCorder, born in 1924 in Washington, D.C., second tenor. Harold Winley, born on May 13th, 1933 in Washington, D.C., the bass. Bass. And so now we got a fully formed band. That's how you make a doo-wop band, the end. Yeah, just get five people together, start singing. Yeah, one of you just has to sound really like, ooh, and the other one's like, ah. Something like that. <laughs> I like how my voice took that moment to like make a crackling noise. Ah. It was It was perfect. Well, and drawing from a mix of secular and gospel influences such as like the Ravens, the Charioteers, the Orioles, and the Swans, all influences on them, but who they really emulated was probably the most successful 
pop group of the early doo-wop, the Ink Spots. Oh, yes. And now to deviate just slightly, the Ink Spots were an American vocal jazz group who gained international fame back in the 1930s and 40s. So they, were, they weren't considered doo-wop. They were considered vocal jazz. Yeah. So since doo-wop didn't come around until later, were these all bands considered vocal jazz then, I guess? I don't know. It seems like there's kind of a revisionist history on the whole thing because now they all just call it the Clovers doo-wop. Yeah, it, well, yeah, exactly. So it's, I don't know, that is kind of weird. Um, I, I assume they were all just vocal jazz, or they were just, like, or, vocal groups. Or they were just rhythm and blues vocal groups. Yeah, cause exactly. They, the Clovers definitely had a more rhythm and blues sound, for yeah, sure. Yeah, because I guess you could, at, at really any point, say, like, when someone asks you what your genre is, you could say just R&B as a genre and get away with it, even though it's one of the widest distinctions in music possible. Well, and the Ink Spots, in 1989, they would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in 1999, were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. But they disbanded in 1954. And I just had to add this because this is hilarious. There have been well over 100 vocal groups to call themselves the Ink Spots without any rights to the name. What? <laughs> yeah. More than one? Just more over than 100? One? Yeah, after they, after they disbanded. What, just trying to capitalize on the on what they already had? Like, yeah. Oh, my God. That is dirty. That's not just dirty for one band to do it. It's dirty for, like, 100, like, fucking vultures. <laughs> yeah, some of these bands would claim to be second-generation or third-generation Ink Spots. Like, that That was my great-great-grandfather was in the Ink Spots? Like... That's all it said. So I'm assuming they're like vocal mark. Yeah, bro. it's like it's like we're the we're the successors to it. You know? <laughs> we're the successors to the successor. My uncle's great uncle once saw him in, in live, and now we're the Ink Spots. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Here's our original song. I'm gonna set the world on fire. <laughs> Here's our original song from 1933. Yep, we we wrote it then. Don't question it. I know we're 19. <laughs> but yeah, you kind of already stole my thunder for my first do check out this song. I don't want to set the world on fire. The ink spots. Yep. Uh, you can also watch this on the trailer of the Fallout 4 video game if you're a gamer out there. <laughs> <laughs> when I l first listened to the song, it's like, I know I've heard this, but this this gives me a setting in my mind of something very dystopian. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, no, as soon as you put it on when we were listening earlier, I was like, oh, I know this song <laughs> very well. So now that we kind of gathered some of their influences, let's get back to the Clovers. You know, they would first kind of hone their style at amateur talent shows at local clubs such as Washington's Old Rose Social Club. It's Washington, D.C., by the way. Yeah, I caught that when everybody was from Washington, D.C. Okay. Just sometimes, if you're on the East Coast and you say Washington, most people think D.C. When you're on the West Coast, most people think Washington State. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it the District of Columbia from here on out. And you I'd have rather to use just that. call it. No, no, you have to use that voice. I just want to call it God the D.C. It. God damn it. I just want to call it the D.C. You never let me have anything. No, it's all <laughs> mine. Anyway, back to our point. <laughs> and so they would end up gaining a measure of local fame when they did a rendition of Gene Austin's hit, Yes Sir, That's My Baby, and it won them first prize on Jackson Lowe's WWDC Amateur Hour. Now, I just got to say, Gene Austin's song, Yes Sir, That's My Baby, 
It's a pretty goofy, kind of fun song. Yeah, it is, it is goofy <laughs> and pretty fun. Uh, I was wondering why you randomly sent me that in the middle of the week, but now it makes more context. <laughs> it really is a weird song to do as a doo-wop song, but I don't know. I really like this version, so maybe it'll make our list. We'll see. And because of winning this talent show, they would end up meeting a man named Lou Kreffitz, a well-connected salesman for Gimbal Brothers Recording Distributors in Baltimore. He thought the group had possibilities and decided to become their manager. Oh, yes. Get was managed. Like, I can exploit them. Yes. Does the does the George Burns hand thing? <laughs> <laughs> That was a terrible. Yes. yes. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. There we go. <laughs> it <laughs> took me a while to get back to the reference. I honestly haven't watched The Simpsons in like a decade. So, <laughs> And that was when it was still bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine now. Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. And so Crefis would end up getting the Clover signed to Eddie Heller's Rainbow label in 1950. Ooh. Unfortunately, the company lacked promotional resources. And the recording studio was so small that it shared office space with a delicatessen. <laughs> oh, wait. That's like they make desserts, right? No, sandwiches. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds delicatessen. It sounds like dessert. It's That's what deli's short for. Oh, actually, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a. I'm not like a sandwich connoisseur. Sorry, man. Dude, check out this food history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, Ian. What Sorry, I, I didn't know your useless trivia. What can I say? I like food. <laughs> I knew the video game thing. <laughs> well, we're both full of useless trivia. Yeah, completely fucking useless. Uh, speaking of useless trivia. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you guys missed me motioning to Ian to continue <laughs> what after I said that. <laughs> Fuck you, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> And so, of course, their debut release was a reworking of their prize-winning song, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. But it was neither a hit nor well-received by the Billboard. As quoted in the Billboard's America Rock and Roll Review, this is sung in a slow tempo on what sounds like an attempt to be different. It is, but not enough. Yeah, well, you don't stake your career on a fucking cover, man. You just write a song. Guys, write a song. Hey, the animals did it for a long time. Yeah, well, they're the animals. They're the ultra thieves. They're like the they're the cat burglars of fucking. Oh, like the animals like sneaking up on Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's how you got him in the episode? Oh, you son of a bitch. Ian challenged this or challenged me before the episode tonight. It was like, well, there's no Bob Dylan in this episode, and I legitimately called him out on it. So here. Here's our Bob Dylan reference. It's the animals doing the 1950s cartoon sneak up behind to steal the song. <laughs> Bob Dylan really has become our official mascot of the podcast now. Well, it's either, it, it's I think we should it's either him and like Lead Belly. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's either <laughs> it's either Bob Dylan and he getting you know House of Rags Sun stolen from him, or it's Lead Belly slashing someone with a razor. So I think we should pick the non-razor slashy one. <laughs> We could just do both, depending on what mood we're in. Yeah, exactly. It's the dualistic fates of our mascots. It's the yin and yang. (laughs) 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 Now, please continue before I slash you with a razor. And through 
Waxy Maxi's Record Mart in New York. <laughs> yeah, is that great? Yeah, tell me more. <laughs> uh, this was New York's main uh, black music outlet. Kravitz lined up an audition for the Clovers at Atlantic Records. And now the co-founder for Atlantic, Ahmet Erdogan. Oh, God, you, you butchered that uh, shit. E-R-T-E-G-U-N. Yeah, duh. If you think I butchered that, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't particularly appreciate vocal groups, was not even a fan of the ink spots, but he did feel like he could soften raw jump blues for a wider audience, a.k.a. He thought he saw some dollar bills. Yeah, that softened for a wider audience. Like, come on, guys. It's a bunch of dudes doing doo-wop. Like, that's, how is that? How are you fucking scared of that? I don't know. I'm moving forward before I get pissed off. I just didn't think he, he thought it would sell and make him money. Yeah, exactly. And, that's what he literally, that's what he meant. Yeah. Ironically enough, saying softening it for a wider audience. Uh, and I mean, like, you mean like wider, right? Like, not like whiter. No, he said wider. Like like like, like W I D E R. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. That's what I, the way I interpreted it. But I then I I started thinking about it, I was like, what if you said a whiter audience? Like <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even put that together. Holy shit. <laughs> that's that's what confused me at first because I was uh, not sure how to land on it. A wider audience makes a lot more sense. And so on February twenty second, nineteen fifty one, the Clovers recorded Don't You Know I Love You, which was released in March nineteen fifty one. This would actually reach number one on the U.S. R&B charts. Hell yeah. And in the liner notes for Rhino Records compilation, The Very Best of the Clovers, Erdogan was quoted as saying, they wanted to record Prisoner of Love, the Billy Eckstein hit, but I was sure they didn't have a chance of selling many copies of it, so I wrote a song for them, Don't You Know I Love You. <laughs> yeah, because he was doing the same thing I was, where he's like, why don't you just write your own fucking song? <laughs> and they're like, uh, and he's like, here, I love you, baby. Don't you know I love you? Here you go. <laughs> and so that brings us to my first Clovers dude. Check out this song. Don't you know I love you? Hell yeah. I do know you love me, Ian. I know you do. Late at night when I whisper in your ear. Well, I, at first I'm like, well, how did you get in my apartment? But then after we get that covered, then I'm all right with it. <laughs> <laughs> you let me in. It's like those 80 movies where I throw rocks at your window. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what the people come here to listen to, Ian. <laughs> this is the opposite of what they want to hear is about romantic twicks that have never happened between you and I. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're curious now. Now they're now they're curious, and that's the problem. Is you keep putting this into their minds. And although this song was a number one hit on the R and B charts, Erdogan wasn't immediately happy with the results. He would say, "I wrote it in a much blacker idiom than the way they sang it, but I must say they built the song into something. They contributed much more than I did. I mean, he wrote the fucking thing, so I don't know how they would contribute more, but." Well, it was probably just like a rough version of lyrics that he gave them, and then they probably actually like made it a song. Oh yeah, that that's a good point. Because I mean, he he probably didn't write any music for it. I'm especially a doo-wop situation. Like, what is he gonna do? Like, oh well, then you guys just drop to the low C, and then uh, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, he was the the co-founder of the record label, so yeah, exactly. So, but he, what he probably did was he probably thought of what like popular songs like lyrically composed of, and then was like, "Here, I'm just gonna lyrically compose you guys a song real quick," and then they probably had to actually, you know, do op it 
I'm using doop as a verb. Doop it. They're gonna doop it. Doop it. <laughs> no, you're <laughs> combining. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'll explain it later when we're not recording. This sounds like that game, Bop it. <laughs> doop it. <laughs> that sounds actually a lot better than Bop It ever was. <laughs> Bop It wasn't that fun. It was like a panic attack game. And the funny thing is, Erdogan would end up writing a bunch of songs for them. He would come up with his own writing name. And this one I'm really gonna, really gonna butcher. Wait, so he, he had a chance to come up with a name that wasn't hard to pronounce and he went with something harder than his own name? Yeah. Oh, God, lay it on me. Nugetra? <laughs> N-U-G-E-T-R-E. Literally his last name spelled backwards. <laughs> he was no more creative than these high school kids. <laughs> oh, my God. Come on, guys. Come on. He would eventually write seven more hits for this band, though. Well, I mean, there you go. You must add some competency in writing, I guess. It is doo-wop. I mean, it is pretty simplistic lyrics, so. Yeah, I mean, it's literally just like, hey, baby, I love you. Do doo-wop. Okay, it's not that easy. I mean. Okay, Ian, we're waiting for your doo-wop hit then. <laughs> I have to have a good voice first. No, you don't. You, it's easy, right? Come on. I'll, I'll start writing some doo-wop. How about you sing it for me? No. What? No, because you're not Edrigan or Idrigan. <laughs> Edriganus. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what my last name would, would be pronounced backwards. <laughs> Let's not try. No. Oh, yeah, I guess we really shouldn't even try, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to actually edit this whole portion out. <laughs> I was legit about to try and do it. I know. And so along with the help of hard-to-pronounce writing name and a man named Jess Stone, who would basically be their other songwriter and producer of all their songs, the Clovers went on to have a lot more R&B chart hits that would include Fool, 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 Hey Miss Fanny, I Played the Fool, and Middle of the Night. Oh, yeah. They're all fucking awesome songs. And they would just keep recording and doing this up until Bailey was drafted into the Army in the summer of 1952. Oh, dude, god damn it, 52. Wait, for Korea? Yep. Well, that answers the question we literally asked last <laughs> week if anybody actually got drafted to Korea, but yep, that's the answer. There we go. Yep. And so my next two check out the song. Fool, 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 hey, Miss Fanny, and middle of the night. Oh, yeah. Should really check them all out. I mean, honestly, even if you don't think you like doo-wop, if you don't like doo-wop, you're just lying to yourself. Like, it's... It's really ridiculously catchy and easy to listen to, and it it sticks with you. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, like, your favorite of all time, but, I mean, just literally think of, like, I don't know, think of what, Sandlot? Doesn't Sandlot have oh, all yeah, that doo-wop in it and ton stuff? Oh, yeah, they got a ton of doo like, in it. Just think of those movies from, you know, maybe yours or my childhood. I don't know how fucking old you are. Like, let's be honest, but... Uh, and if you haven't watched the Sandlot, yeah, do, do che check out yeah, the Sandlot. Yeah, do check out Sandlot, because that's honestly felt fairly relative, because there's a bunch of doo-wop in that, so... And so they would end up replacing Bailey with Charles White, a former member of the Dominoes and the Checkers. And he would sing lead on the Clovers. Wait, so he played in two bands named after board games? No, I think that was the whole name. Oh, okay. Oh, and, 
I, they might actually be separate band names now that I think about it. Either way, that <laughs> dude, if it's two different bands, that's fucking hilarious. And if it's one band, if it's one band name, that's a ridiculous band name. So I'm gonna laugh either way and just enjoy my my victory. And he would end up singing on a few hits in 1954, "Lovey Dovey" with Little Mama, and that was about it. And then he left to join the Playboys, not the Playboys with uh, Bob Wills. Yeah, not the yeah, not the the what. No, because they had another word before it, the Texas Playboys. Texas Playboys. Yeah, not the Texas yep. Playboys. Not the diff- Texas Playboys. Yeah, a different band called the Playboys. Though, if he if he went and joined the Texas Playboys, that would have been hilarious, because <laughs> they are very, very different types of music. Oh, fuck. Uh, I'm so sorry to all of you guys for this episode. I don't know why. We're just talking so much shit. <laughs> Honestly, though, that was needed. Yeah, and also, I, I, I'm, I'm not sorry to you guys at all. And so, they would get end up picking up solo artist Billy Mitchell, and he would come in and sing leads and appear on a song called Your Cash Ain't Nothing But Trash. Which, <laughs> that's a fucking awesome song name. Yeah. Which climbed to number six in 1954. Hell yeah. And with Billy Mitchell singing, they would continue to enjoy a string of big R&B smashes such as One Mint Julep, Tingling. Hell yeah. Wonder Where My Baby's Gone. Hell yeah. Coming On. Hell yeah. Crawling. Hell yeah. Good Loving. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just trying to be the bass for our podcast now. (laughs) Oh, Oh. you're the bass member of our doo-wop group? Oh yeah, Ian. Tell it some more and lay it down with all those dude check out this song. (laughs) Well, funny thing is, is after these string of hits... Bailey would return from the war. Hell yeah. And they didn't fire Mitchell. They kept him. But they would also have Bailey sing. So they had two lead singers, and they would alternate leads. Holy shit. That kind of sounds like something that's really popular in the 90s and early 2000s. Or maybe an innovation that the Temptations would steal a decade later. Yeah, I mean, well, definitely, I guess the Temptations are the closest people to steal that. But, I mean, if you think about it, that's fucking... That innovation right there is so huge for like R and B because oh know, yeah, think of like you know boys to men and like all <laughs> that's those. That's exactly what I was thinking. Of. <laughs> <laughs> like all those nineties R and B groups where they all like they're all super good and they're all super duoppy, but then each one can like they step up to the mic and each one's a c- accomplished like individual leader like or lead vocalist, so they just you know switch them out all the time, and it sounds great. <laughs> I'm of the perfect era to where I still think that Boys and Men sounds great. I don't give a shit. <laughs> oh, man, I remember those middle school days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't share any stories of that I have while listening to Boys to Men, so let's just move on. <laughs> well, that brings me to my next dude. Check out this song. We got One Mint Julep. Oh, so good. Wonder where my baby's gone. Yep, also on- dig it. Dude, this song, like, way different than I expected it to be. 
but really awesome. Like Hell it was, yeah. a, it was a surprise, and it was a good surprise. Honestly, like it's one of the songs that we were listening to where I was like, okay, Duop's kind of the same song all the time, is what I was starting to feel already. But we got to that, and I was like, no, there's some super innovation available, and even I wasn't even able to see like the little bits of innovation that had gone in the songs I'd already previously listened to, until I kind of saw this. I don't know. It it is interesting. Please just listen to it yourself. You'll understand. And then we got crawling, and the last one, good loving. Good loving. Oh yeah. I think you need a little bit more bass on that. Oh yeah. Sorry, that's about as low as I go, guys. <laughs> we are a terrible doo-wop group. We really are. We don't have enough members either. Yeah, especially since you're like a probably a baritone at highest, <laughs> and I'm probably like a bar low baritone. Like we're just have two baritones, and <laughs> <laughs> it's not that's not really how you make music, guys. It's dual basses. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a seven string guitar, <laughs> and you're uh, and you're what would you be? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a baritone. Cello. You're a cello. <laughs> yeah, I'm a cello. Yeah. Either way, that's not a good composition of instruments. You gotta have some high end. That's a, if you're really ever having intru- or problems with all your friends and you guys are all playing. Look at your instrument composition. I've had this multiple times where I'm like, "Why are all these like awesome musicians together? It doesn't sound good for some reason." I look around and be like, "Oh, bass, bass, me on accordion, and this guy's like play." You know what I mean? Like there just wasn't enough range of uh, of possible instrumentation. So sounds like you need to get some new friends. Now you need high, medium, and low. Well, you guys definitely had the high. Oh, my God. I can't believe you just <laughs> took that cheap shot at me in front of all of our friends here. Ian, sweet God. God. I swing low. <laughs> sweet chariot. <laughs> Where are we going with this episode? Uh, I don't know. This, this episode's, like, off the rails. <laughs> with the... The uh, last ride of the old 97, or, or old 97, the song where the train goes off the rails at the end. Oh, I don't know that song. Yeah, well, that's what this episode is. A wreck of the old 97, I think it is. Yeah, it's like old traditional. See, Ian, you've been playing too much metal. You don't know all your old folk traditionals anymore. That's true. In 1955, the Clovers switched to singing a few more ballads. With the release of their single, Blue Velvet, charted okay. They would have a few more hits for Atlantic, Nip Sip, Devil or Angel, Hey Baby Doll, and Love, Love, Love. Yeah, and we've clearly covered this before, but Nip Sip is not about sipping on any nips. I checked. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's uh, sipping on some whiskey or something. Yeah, it's like some sort of probably like like whiskey and Coke, or it could just, I mean, from what it kind of sounded like, it kind of sounded like Nip Sip was just like that motion you make when you make a small sip out of a straw. Like, that was kind of what I got out of it, but I'm pretty sure I'm just not culturally connected to that right. era. I, I don't think either of us are. Yeah, there's uh, honestly, like, if you listen to the song, you will feel lost. Like, I mean, it's it's super, uh, I don't know, it's it's very fun. It's almost like they wanted to make a story about uh, of it, but they just had random situations. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song. Just listen to it. You guys will love it. And, in fact, this is the first song on my next Dude, Check Out This Song. So, let's check out Nip Sip, huh? Didn't you? Oh. Okay, yeah. Let's check it out. Nip Sip. I told you that's not what it's about, Ian. (laughs) And then the next one's Hey Baby Doll. Yeah, which is also another fantastic fucking song. 
I, I, I really enjoyed both of these. Uh, I'm going to use these songs and uh, play some doo-wop jams for my lady with some candles on later. So That's an excellent plan. Yeah, so I guess, as you as you steal my plan, I guess both of us are going to do it. Just wait until they listen to this episode, like, some weeks from now and find out that we came up with a plan like that. Well, I'm just pulling a doo-wop and claiming it as my own. <laughs> okay, that's fucked up, dude. God damn it, Ian. That's a, that, well, you took a low blow on me, and I'm used to that, but you can't just low blow all of doo-wop like that. <laughs> hey, I co-host this podcast. I've... I can do it. You've earned the right I've to talk right. shit about an entire <laughs> genre of music. All I'm right. not hating it. I love doo Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. We see you, Ian. Yeah, we see you. Well, and so by the late 1950s, obviously, rock and roll takes over everything. So the Clovers struggle to, you know, get any sort of hit out there even though some doo-wop is literally rock and roll with no instruments i'm throwing it out here right now if you listen to like 50s rock and roll oh, yeah. and some of the 50s doo-wop their only difference is the fact there's no guitar drums and bass yep pretty much and that goddamn doo-wop guys are probably a little more talented i i at said least, it at least singing wise yeah i said well it doesn't seem like they write any of their own stuff so yeah okay i guess that is, <laughs> that does make a lot of sense so vocally they're much but I was also saying, like, I don't know if, uh, if 50s, like, rock and roll is super skill-heavy, but I then I think that I'm I'm using my modern perspective to skew it because I think playing rock and roll in the 50s was a lot harder because you were working with 50s equipment. Yeah, and they were evolving music as they went along at the time. Yeah, well, yeah the, the conceptual difficulty is something that I, I wasn't really trying to apply too much. They're both kind of new genres, so. Well, and so... Their manager, Kreffitz. <laughs> Wait, who? Kreffitz. Kreffitz? Is this a different guy? Than... No, it's the same guy. Wasn't I... wasn't his name like... No, that was the co-founder. Oh, okay, okay. All right, yeah. Yeah. No, it's the same manager that they've had through their entire career up uh, to this point. All right, cool. He was offered the position as head of sales for the United Artists label, which, of course, he accepted. Well, and he duh. And he would bring the Clovers along and start recording for them. Oh, yes. And some good news for the Clovers was that they had the famous songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller wrote a bunch of Elvis Presley hits. Yeah, I've actually heard Lieber's name before. I've never heard the other guy's name. And so they went in to do their first recording session for United Artists in the summer of 1959. And this would result in a Lieber Stoller written single titled... Love Potion Number Nine. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys know that song. Probably nobody has ever heard that song, right? Love Potion Number Nine. I mean, it's only been copied like a hundred times. Yeah, it's only been played by literally everybody. Santana, you guys know that guy? The Searchers, probably the most famous version of, of this song. Yeah, the most famous version of the song, one hundred percent. But when you say the Searchers, I can't tell you another Searchers song. So. <laughs> no, they they pulled an animals. <laughs> it's a, it is either way a fantastic version. Honestly, any version of Love Potion Number Nine is probably going to be of a good version for you. Yeah, and this would actually be the group's biggest hit of their entire career. It lasted. You know, well, it's one of the things you show like the big hits. They uh, they resound for 30, 40, 50 years. And that's why this is my next dude. Check out this song. Love Potion Number Nine. Love Potion Number Nine. Oh, dude. 
I've had this song stuck in my head all week, and I'm not even annoyed by it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, honestly, this is just my opinion, but I think this is the best pop song ever written. Oh, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. Especially just, like, I don't know, the way it was written and the way it's composed is so well done in, like, a technically proficient way, and on top of it, it w- it is everything that pop music needs to be, where every line's catchy, everything... Well, the vocal melody in and of itself, even if you don't know the lyrics, it's catchy as fuck. Yeah, I don't know how many years it has been since I listened to that song, and as soon as you said it, I was like, "Love potion number nine." Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh God. Like, like I don't. I, I honestly could say it's been probably five, six years since I've actually heard a rendition before today, and it's it's still ingrained in my skull. Well, love potion number nine would be the group's last hurrah. No. They would never make it to any major charts ever again, and they would fail to get any other big hit. And in 1961, the group was dropped by United Artists, and they would continue for smaller labels, producing insignificant singles. Eventually, McCorder would quit, initiating the rest of the band to split. Did he quit, like, due to any bad blood that you found or anything like that? Do we got any drama for an end? or was uh, it just I wish time... I could find... I've Was it just I've... time to call quits then? I huh? think it was just time to... Probably, you know, they're stressing on trying to get a hit going. and Well, especially, like, one of the things that is hardest on a lot of artists that are, like, really famous, and me, of all people, is never one to throw pity at somebody with a large amount of fame because, you know, that comes with all the benefits that you guys are suckling on, so I'm not usually very, you know, don't usually have a lot of pity for you, but one of the things that does suck is hitting such a peak that one artist can never hit the same peak twice. You know what I right. mean? Right. Like, well, that's why all the old bands play all their old hits, even though they record all this new material. Nobody gives a shit about it. And there's probably something extremely frustrating in that where it's just like, why can't I get to that that point again? Yeah, it's like trying to tread water but still going under. You know what I mean? Like, you know how to swim. You know how to tread water, but for some reason you're still going under. That's, that's At least a, creatively going have, under. Well, yeah, exactly. And you have to I'm, feel very powerless in that situation. I'm sure just based off of how big of a hit Love Potion Number 9 was, they could have toured off that song the entire rest of their lives. Yeah, easily. Easily the rest of their lives. Like, uh, they, I mean, that's one of the things that, that a lot of... <laughs> I hesitate to say overly successful bands do is where they they know when their heyday is done and they no longer try and like rack hits. Yeah, when they, well, when they when they resign themselves to touring for their old fans. Yeah, and that's that's got to be a weird transition for a for a professional musician. They're no longer the cool band anymore. Yeah, and you have At to one you have point to play on shit. You, yeah, and you have to play on. Do you guys remember when I did this? 10 years ago like yeah, that's and all your fans are like five years younger than you and you know or even if they're the same age they're like yeah you guys rocked 10 years ago when i saw you like the best compliment you're ever gonna get is do you guys remember how cool you were before now <laughs> not now but before you remember how I'm, cool you i'm used 70 to be? years old and i can't figure out how to turn the light on my phone but yeah yeah. Want to see my tits? Yeah. No, please keep them in. <laughs> no nip sips. <laughs> oh, that's a nip slip. Excuse me. That's slightly different, right? <laughs> that that one's definitely a slip. <laughs> so Mitchell and Lucas would end up trying to reorganize the group with ex-Bachelor members James Toy Walton and Robert Russell. You know, another doo-wop group. 
And they would return to Atlantic, but they weren't able to make a cut for them. And to complicate things even further, there was another group who also called themselves the Clovers. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. What, are they all going to end up in unmarked graves next? They might. I, I haven't told you yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm waiting, Ian. God damn it. And so by the 70s, there would be even more incarnations of the band. Several spinoff groups claiming themselves to be the Clovers for their live gigs and recordings. But most of the actual members of the Clovers had gone solo by this point. <laughs> How in two episodes, the same or one episode, the same thing happened twice? Like... <laughs> uh, yeah, after reading that, I was like, is this just like a doo-wop thing? It's got to be a doo-wop thing. <laughs> Hence why I mentioned it earlier in the episode. Which actually makes sense because I'm pretty sure I once saw like a pretty decently long video of like a Boys to Men like live concert that turned out to not even be Boys to Men. They were just like a bunch of dudes who kind of looked like them who were really? Boys to Men. Yeah, I don't even remember where <laughs> I saw it, but somebody sent it to me at one point. It was... It's fucking hilarious. I think it might have, like, continued on through the genre then. Well, and so throughout the rest of their lives, they would, you know, reform for, like, Grammy performances or whatever award show they were playing for. But for the most part, they would get other doo-wop groups to sing with them and do solo shit and obviously, you know, re-sing the hits or whatever, you Yeah, know. milk what you can on the way out. Yep, exactly. Well, Bill Harris would die in December 6, 1988. And one thing I couldn't actually find deaths for all for these guys, it just I just yeah. found dates. That's one of the things that happens in these larger groups. Yeah. Like they nobody pays attention to the individual after the group stops. Right. So yeah, he died December 6, 1988 in Washington DC. The first one to go, 88's actually pretty early for these guys. I mean, you know, you're talking in your 50s. Yeah, no, exactly, because they were born in the 30s and or like or late 20s, so that's, you know, dying in the 80s is 50s and maybe 60s at the earliest. Harold Lucas, you know, the founder of the band, would die at the age of 61 in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 1994. John Buddy Bailey died on February 3rd, 1994 in Las Vegas, so they were like, Almost a month apart. Right before his death, though, he would end up doing a solo performance with a doo-wop group called the Calvanes. The Calvanes? C-A-L-V-A-N-E-S. Calvanes. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't know, man. <laughs> Matthew McCorder, the first one to quit the band, he died at the age of 73 in Dallas, Texas on December 19th in 2000. He saw wow. the millennium, yeah. Yeah, so he he made it a long ways. That's like that's getting up there in the seventies, eighties era. Yep. Well, he died at seventy three, so yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what I meant. Like he's like, he's up past seventy. That's all that matters. Billy Mitchell, the one who would come in re and replace John Buddy Bailey when he got shipped off to war, mm -hmm. the one who sang lead on Love Potion Number Nine, died at the age of seventy one in Washington D.C. on November fifth, two thousand two. And Harold Winley, as far as I can tell, he's still alive. Oh, there's no date or there's no death date for him. I huh? can't find a death date for him. So he's probably still uh, kicking on it. Wikipedia or anything. Like everything else is li uh, labeled on Wikipedia and stuff. Mm -hmm. Not that I do it from a research, but if I'm really desperate, I'll look there. Yeah. Nothing about him just, dying. Just nothing, huh? So either he just like disappeared somewhere or he's still alive and kicking it. 
Well, hey, if you're live and kicking it out there, man, hell yeah, more power to you, dude. Hey, Harold, I like the music you made when, you know, you were in your 20s. Yeah, and I apologize for any of the shit that Ian talked during this episode. <laughs> and so, honestly, I wasn't really sure how to end this, as this was really the first group we've ever covered before. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually something that I, I didn't think about until we got here, but I didn't realize we would have this uh, kind of change of format just a little bit once we start getting into more groups, like... Because we have more members to accomplish, and there's not yeah, like... Yeah, I kind of a... try and keep track of... And honestly, I really did try and find Bailey's Army records. Like, I really wanted to find some kick-ass battle he was in. Yeah, like what... if he participated in any, like, military efforts or yeah. anything like that. And it would just redirect me to all the all my research that I had up already anyway. And all it said was he was drafted, so... Oh, yeah, that sucks. Like, uh, it makes sense, because, you know, a lot of, there wasn't a lot of, like, information kept for everybody in, during World War II, so... Right, and didn't seem like he talked about it, so maybe he didn't do a whole lot, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, especially if it didn't even say, like, what regiment he was in or anything like that, like... Well, right, and it could come back to the racism of the time, too. Like, I remember my grandpa telling a story of World War II where... They needed more men, and his officer went back, called back to, like, headquarters or whatever, and was like, we need more men. And he said, all right, we're going to send in a bunch of our African-American soldiers. And he goes, no. And they go, well, either take them or you get nobody. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fucked up, dude. (laughs) Like, (laughs) how are you going to be a military commander and be like, I need more people to protect this line? They're like, all right, we're sending you these people. Like, no, those people are the wrong shade of people. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is, the, yeah. We, it, is 19, it is 1942 slash 1937. Well, this slash. was the, during the Korean War. So oh, right, the, yeah. So but this 50s. is before the the civil rights protests and stuff, so. Oh, okay, yeah, it still, it still makes sense, but even in the 50s, like, that's fucked up, dude. Like, everybody's a soldier at that point. Isn't that, like, one of the creeds they teach you in the military now, I'm pretty sure? Yeah, you're all one, you know, it, <laughs> you're all green or whatever it yeah may be. yeah it is yeah. Uh, i don't know i'm not i'm not a military guy so i don't really know so i guess at this point we we have uh nothing left but uh cracking into some last thoughts huh i think so well i guess i'll go first i keep making you go first and it's not fair you say that but okay go first i mean do you want to go first I, i'll let you nah no nah, nah, you, you climbed it spot. <laughs> all i'm gonna say is it was truly refreshing this evening to cover a type of music, A, that we've never covered before. We've never even looked at doo-wop, much less, I don't think, any completely vocalized music at all. No, we actually didn't even think about doo-wop right away when we were first starting to curate the list for this season. Yeah, if I remember right, we actually came back to the list later and added doo-wop because it was an, uh, because it was something that was important enough to rock and roll to where we wanted to represent it, but it wasn't something we included in our initial... Like, now, I, th- I think I remember how we discovered it is... We were looking at strictly rock and roll because that was the story of the 50s, basically, right? Yeah. And then we started looking at some of the number one hits, and we're like, oh, right, doo-wop came around at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And that 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 does make a lot of sense, like, because I'm not lying when I say, like, if you don't have a lot of experience in doo-wop, you can listen to enough doo-wop, and eventually you're going to find these doo-wop songs that sound exactly like mid-50s rock and roll songs, just without, like, any sort of instrumentation. Any of the, yeah, the mainstay 
and instruments. S- yeah, exactly. And the, it honestly, like the rhythm and blues portion of doo-wop really inspired what would become the instrumentationalized versions of R&B that would come shortly after. Because they would still keep this multi-vocalization, these these harmonies, these these vocal heavy, like all the members would always have great voices sort of theme. Right, and if you think about it, it even carries into our time, like pop songs of our day. We already mentioned Boys to Men. Yeah, but I mean, think about like NSYNC. Or, yeah, exactly. You even, know, even like the boy boy bands. Yeah, like the, I mean the that that all has 90s. a basis in doo-wop. Yeah, exactly, it, and that is cool. Like I. It's interesting to get those little portions of the origin and start to connect the dots because that's what that's what we do already. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention for whatever twenty eight episodes or what. What is this? This is episode twenty seven. Excuse me, twenty seven episodes so far. Uh, but it, it, we really like to look at how things touch each other like what sort of what sort of genres align with each other and what sort of influences combine with other influences to make these completely unique and brand new things and so you have this r&b you know a brand new culture taking on something that like we said you know barbershop quartets whether or not i'm sure there was definitely people of all races who did barbershop quartets i'm not making the implication that it was specifically just a cracker music but when you think of like barbershop quartets you yeah you d- think of a bunch of guy white guys with the uh tiny bow white, ties and tiny bow ties and the vest with the the white and the red yeah, exactly <laughs> the, that that little like um what is that made out of straw hat <laughs> and a couple of them have like really thick mustaches yeah, exactly and, and so it's it's interesting to see an entire different culture with with african-americans picking it up and in such a genuine way, like making it their own, because it, it honestly is something completely different. Like, while I can say, wow, I totally hear the barbershop quartet in that, you would never, ever, ever hear a barbershop quartet singing the songs that these guys would be producing, because obviously it is a brand new generation. Well, right, and barbershop quartets, if I remember correctly, are all strictly vocalization of yeah. every every part yeah with no guitars or no back or backing instrumentation so the doo-wop with just like a single instrument back if you're playing live like we spoke of earlier the acoustic guitar like being being part of the whole instrumentation like that is that is really interesting and unique and i think that honestly like it's one of my favorite nodes of music that we've stumbled upon so far because it's just so isolated there's not a lot of inspirations going in and there's a fuck ton of inspirations coming out that's the weird thing is is i would disagree with you a little bit i think there's a lot of inspiration coming in but i think they stripped down this music to more of a bare bones type thing like almost like we want like an instrument on this and then we want a vocalization to represent all the other instruments. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like, I, obviously, neither of us can make any claim one way or the other, but I'm just trying to think about it, like, as a musician myself and how you would get that. You mentioned, like, one band that was kind of identified to this genre before doo was a thing, right? Yeah, that would be the Ink Spots. Yeah, the Ink Spots. Uh, and that was, like, I don't know, that's such an interesting, like, if you're... you're Genre origin is just one band. It usually turns out to be such a unique origin compared to any other. You know what I mean? Like, it, it tends to be something quite a different change from others, you know? Well, especially since they kind of took on, like, almost like a different tonality, even though they were directly influenced from them. And even 
other bands of the time, like I mentioned in the beginning of the episodes, like the Ravens and the Charioteers, but then the Orioles. I know we listened to some of the Orioles, like, back in our early 20s together. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. And so it, it really does start to broaden out once it hits that choke point. But it's, like I said, it's, it's just really interesting for the, the, the music scholar in me to look at where the influences come in and stuff. And... It, when it kind of compresses down to just a few bands or just a, a few little portions of a few little genres that influence a new type of genre, you can almost see like that, that almost perfect unity. You know what I mean? Like they, they cherry picked a piece of each of the genres they cared about and made one like solid unifier. And that's really what doo-wop is. It's not the mess that rock and roll became. Well, I think later doo-wop became watermelon picking because it seemed like they just were like, now we're the Clovers. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I had to get one more singer in there. Come on now. Yeah, I, I guess that that is very true, uh, especially with a lot of people picking up uh, people's, I don't know, like legacies after they quit. That's kind of fucked up, guys. So if you were ever a part of that, shame on you. Shame for shame. shame. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ian, come on, hit us with your last thoughts, bro. All right, my last thoughts are pretty simple. And really, it's just an appreciation for doo-wop because it's honestly just a fun music. It's not like it doesn't seem to take itself too seriously, like as the music itself, you know. It's just it is what it is. It's just these stripped down forms of these music. That really is catchy as fuck. Yeah, I mean, amazingly catchy. I mean, love potion number nine, guys. Oh, God, dude. I still have that song stuck in my head. Yeah, it's, it, is, it, is, it is one of the finest pop musics that have been around. Pop musics? Yeah, one of the pop music high. Oh, okay. <laughs> Music-y. <laughs> Two eyes, like the Roman version? I don't know, bro. And also, you know, I didn't realize how much more depth doo-wop could have, too. Because honestly, I've listened to a lot of music in my life, and I've heard doo-wop throughout it, and I've always thought it was fun, but there were some songs we dug in today that actually surprised me, like, how they sounded. Yeah, we already talked about the fact that a lot of our, like, childhood, like, movies had a lot of doo-wop in it, just because, like, the era is perfect, you know, like, 20 years after something's popular, then it's popular in movies, like, you know, it's, yeah. it's just kind of the way it goes, and... That was really cool for us because we got a little bit of like a touch here and there, but that really didn't show the width and breadth of the music that was there. And you mentioned Sandlot during the episode. I immediately got one of the scenes and the correlating song in that scene stuck in my head. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things that like that's a memory callback that's so hard, like so solid for, you know, when you think Sandlot and doo-wop, if you've ever spent like you (coughs) Uh, are you right? Ian's yeah. dying. Ian's choking to death, guys. Somebody send it. Somebody send it. No, no, you're, all right. He's going to live. Fuck. That beer went down the wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, guys, like, I don't know. Just take a take a moment to appreciate doo-wop, even if you're not a big, you know, we always talk about, like, even if it's not your genre, even if it's not your style of music, do what you can to really appreciate music for what it is and there's a lot of options out there yeah and we've talked about that with jazz you know where we didn't really know jazz and we didn't really come to appreciate it till we started doing this show 
Yeah, and, uh, honestly, I kind of hated jazz before I started doing this show, but then I listened to enough of it, and we get into, like, you know, Bix Beaterbeck and shit like that, and, like, I was like, okay. Yeah, and then you, you start in the early years, and you hear where it comes from, and then you're able to start breaking it down to the different elements of influences. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it really does uh, heighten the enjoyment that you get out of it if you can kind of have some sort of philosophical connection to it. And so, you know, I'm always talking about, like, you know, what an influence is or what influences the music and where the influence goes and who does a cover of what and, you know, how the stories and, and songs are passed down. But that's really what it comes down to. Like, who you influence is more important than anything else, right? In terms of music, yeah. I mean, because as musicians, we all kind of cop from our influences. You know, like, we've mentioned this before, but all music stolen from somebody else. And yeah. And at the end of the day, it's just taking something that really means something to you and tweaking it to your own soul, really. Yeah, exactly. Or combining a few different things that really mean something to you into something that is uniquely your own. Like, that's one of the best ways. If you guys are, like, trying to find your own sound or trying to find your own groove or what it is, take the top three genres that you really enjoy. Find all the really iconic parts of that genre. Make a little list and then smash them together and see if you can do something unique with it. I guarantee nine, nine ten times out of ten, they are probably pretty interestingly complimentary. And we're hoping that some people will try and cop some stuff from us someday. So in order for them to do that, you got to get the name out for us. Yeah, that was smoothie. And so make sure you check us out on, on uh, social media stuff. Give us as many stars as you like on the things that you look at and uh, check out our Spotify. Hell yeah, we got all the songs on there. Hell yeah, Ian does a hell of a job every week on that. So, you know, make sure that you uh, turn it on your car and your house after the episode and really jam out and, you know, feel what we really, you know, spent the time to, to dig into. Take the little stories and apply it to the music you listen to and, you know, just have fun. And also have a good night. We love you.